there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. The title of the second talk is Will. Three ways to get to know God, and there are certainly other ways. We can't begin to cover them in this short day. But the first one is grace, and the second one is will. I met my husband, Addison Leach, through a speaking engagement. When I had arrived, one of the main reasons that I had accepted the speaking engagement in Missouri was because the chaplain of the college where I was to speak was a good friend, and he and his wife had invited me to come and spend the weekend with them in their home, and they were uh, just delightful people, and so that helped to tip the scales to accept that invitation rather than another one that came on the same weekend. But when I got to their house, I was very dismayed because they said, we have set up an appointment for you this afternoon with Addison Leach. Well, I had never heard of Addison Leach and didn't know who in the world he was. Well, he happened to be the vice president of the college. And I said, but I don't want any, any appointments with some stuffed shirt of a vice president of a college. And they just laughed and they said, oh, you don't know what you're in for. You're just going to love this man. And I was still quite irritated that half of my Saturday afternoon was going to be occupied talking with this man. Well, his purpose in wanting to talk with me was that he had a conference coming up the following summer and he wanted to talk to me about the possibility of my coming to speak there. But anyway... In the time that we spent together, and I suppose it maybe was an hour, an hour and a half or so, sitting by the fire in the home of these friends, I found him absolutely charming, captivating, tall, handsome, uh, a charismatic kind of a personality, just the kind that draws you, very intelligent. He had a doctorate from Cambridge, England and a man with tremendous sense of humor. And during that weekend, I met his wife and two of his children, two of his daughters. But sometime later, I guess a year and a half or two years later, his wife died, and that man came to visit me after that, sometime after that. And... One of the, oh, I forgot to tell you one little interest, interesting thing that he had said to me during that weekend when I was speaking. I, I had to speak in the college chapel, and there was this very captivating man sitting right on the front row under my nose when I was speaking. And I don't remember anything about my subject, but I do remember saying in my talk, you know, what a real woman wants is to be told what to do. Now, that's it. A very odd thing for a woman to say in this day and age, but I, I really do believe that. I think deep down in our hearts, we were made to be responders, not initiators. And the more we comply with God's design, the happier we are, the freer we are. And so somehow or other, that came out in my story. Well, he came up to me after it was over, and he said, you do need somebody to tell you what to do, and I'm going to tell you what to do. You've got to come next summer and speak for our conference. (laughs) 
Well, anyway, um, years later, this man asked me to marry him. Now, I had a choice, didn't I? I could say yes, or I could say no. I could consent, or I could refuse. Why could I do that? Because God had given me the faculty of will. God created every last one of us with the faculty of will. And God himself is the bridegroom. It's a beautiful metaphor which is used for the relationship between God and his people. I think it, it touches on the deepest mystery of our relationship. The fact that he calls himself the bridegroom and his church the bride. Why is he the bridegroom? Well, because he is the initiator. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He is the one who woos us. He incites us. He calls us by his name. He calls us by our names. He gives us his name. He draws us to himself. There was nothing attractive in us when he died for us. He came to his own and his own received him not. And yet he continues by his grace to woo, to draw, to incite us. And if we ever really look at him, if we ever taste and see that the Lord is good, we are attracted. Now, I didn't want to see Dr. Leach on that Saturday afternoon. I had to take my friend's word for it that I would enjoy the time. But whether I was going to enjoy it or not, the appointment had been set up. Well, I found him extremely attractive. And I was drawn to him. And we found out that we had all sorts of things in common in our conversation. And we had a very good time. And so years later, when he invited me to marry him, there wasn't any question in my mind but what my answer would be yes. There's an old hymn that we also sang in family prayers. I found a friend, oh, such a friend. He loved me ere I knew him. He drew me with the cords of love. And thus, he bound me to him. And I think that this is what a real man does. He knows how to draw a woman, to attract her, to take the risks. We were just talking as we were driving to the airport yesterday with the young seminary student who lives in our house. He drives us to the airport. And we were talking about why men aren't dating these days. And it comes down to men are scared to death of women. They're scared to death of being rejected, and women don't any longer seem to know how to be warm and womanly. So men are at a loss, and we think I think that we can all thank the social climate in which we live for a lot of the pressures that have distorted our thinking on this matter. But the point that I'm making for you to, right now is that God gives us the power to choose. So that is the first thing. And I'm not making this up out of my head. I try to back up everything I say with the scripture. And in Deuteronomy 30, verse 19, we read, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God, listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. 
This is Deuteronomy 30, verse 17, verse 19 and 20. I set before you life and death, blessings and curses, therefore choose life. And in Joshua, chapter 24, verse 15. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua declares his choice. I have a friend in California who has three words on her license plate, as for me. And she told me that it opens up hundreds of opportunities. People are always asking, what's that word, as, as for me, as for me? Well, that's three words, as for me. And she gives them this verse, we will serve the Lord. You have a choice. Now, if you want to be my disciple, Jesus said, isn't that clearly laying before us a choice? If. God gave Adam and Eve a choice in the Garden of Eden. He said, here is every kind of fruit tree that you could ever want, everything that's pleasant to the eyes, good to the taste. But there's one tree that will not do you any good. In fact, it will destroy you if you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will die. And if you tell your little child, if you touch that piece of Baccarat crystal on the coffee table, you will get a spanking. What is that little boy likely to do then? He chooses to rebel against your word. He does not want that piece of crystal any more than fly. It's not that he can't eat it, he can't really play with it, it's not very interesting. But if you say no, then he must have that one thing. Now, of course, God was talking to a perfect man and a perfect woman, fully adult, and they had a clear choice, and they chose to rebel. They chose to accept the word of Satan. They chose to believe that dreadful, that great lie that God was trying to cheat them of the one thing that would really make them happy. Because God was such an evil God that all he meant to do was to cheat them. And if you tell your little child not to touch the hot stove, the little child has this idea that you're trying to cheat him out of some pleasure. Well, he doesn't even need to get the spanking if he touches the hot stove. He, he will be punished by the heat to the stove. We are rebels. But God has given us a choice. And Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must do three things. You don't have to be my disciple if you don't want to be, but if that's your choice, then you must give up your right to yourself. And you must take up the cross. And you must follow. And if you've been watching the Olympics, you've been watching people who have given up their right to themselves in order to do the coach's thing. And they would never be able to fly as they do over the ice or soar through the air as they do on those skis or do any of the other incredible things that Olympic athletes can do 
if they hadn't given up their right to themselves and taken up the burden of discipline, Jesus says, take up the cross and follow me and do exactly what the coach says. And we accept that when it comes to something like athletics because we love watching people who can do things so beautifully. And we all say, when we see somebody do that incredible floating and swirling and twirling over the ice, I'd give anything in the world if I could do that. Wouldn't you give anything in the world if you could play the piano like Nancy? No, you wouldn't. You'd give anything but what it takes. What does it take to be a world champion athlete? It takes discipline, obedience. And we don't want that. But God gives us a choice. One lady this morning who came and handed me my book called Discipline, the Glad Surrender, she said, you know, this is the hardest thing in the world for me to do. Well, I want to say, so what else is new? I mean, has anybody here found it easy? Does the athlete find it easy to practice on the ice eight hours a day? My 14-year-old grandson is, practi is practicing swimming four hours a day in the Olympic team swimming pool in California. 14 years old, four hours of swimming a day. To me, that's just mind-boggling. I don't know that he wants to be an Olympic swimmer, but he does want to be a good swimmer, and he wants to be good enough to get a scholarship to get into college, and so it's discipline. He can't do a thousand other things that every other 14-year-old boy is doing because he's practicing four hours a day. He gets up at 5 o'clock in the morning. He has to be at the pool at 6. He practices from 6 to 8 in the morning. He goes to class from 8 to 3, and he practices from 3 to 5 in the pool in the evening. If you want to be my disciple, if we confess our sins, God gives us a choice. Confess or keep on lugging the, lo the luggage around. As many as received him, to them gave he power. Whosoever will may come. Lars and I get some very strange phone calls sometimes. And three or four times we've had phone calls from a girl in a state, one of the states. And she is impossible to help. And she will go on and on and on about all these problems that she's got. And she tells us that she wants to do the will of God, but she can't do it. And I tell her, yes, you can. And she says, no, I can't. And I say, yes, you can. God has never asked anybody to do anything that he will not enable you to do. The will of God is always possible. It is always possible. Yes, but is it my will or is it God's will? I really think I want to do God's will, but then I can't do God's will because it seems to me too hard. And then sometimes I think, well, maybe I'm not really sure whether I want to or not. And whether if, if, if it's really God's will, isn't God making me will to do it? And if God doesn't make me will to do it, then I can't really do it. And this is the way she goes on and on and on. And sometimes we're sitting at the dinner table and Lars talks to her for 20 minutes. And then the next time she calls, I get, I happens to be the one that gets stuck with her. And I have said to her, you are not absolutely helpless. How did you ever decide to dial this number? You dialed this number because you wanted to, didn't you? And you had to go to a lot of trouble to find it.
are you absolutely helpless? Is it impossible to do the will of God? I said, you picked up the phone, didn't you? You dialed the number, or you punched the number, or whatever you did. And here you are talking to us while we're trying to eat supper. I mean, it, we had to get kind of strict with this girl because it just went on and on, but there wasn't anything else I could say to her, but what the Bible says, if any man willeth to do his will, he shall know. That's John 7:17. 7, You've got to be willing. And all events are God's bright servants. God is giving us the choice every minute of every day to live in his presence, to sit at his feet, to do his will, to get to know him, to receive his grace. Everything that happens in my life is an opportunity. My responsibilities, my circumstances, every venture, every obligation, these are the will of God. What are your responsibilities? Many of you are wives. You have a responsibility to your husband. You know what the responsibilities are. Cook his breakfast, iron his shirt, wash his clothes, make sure the house is clean. I presume those are your responsibilities. I don't know all the rest of them. If you have children, you've got a thousand more responsibilities. They are your opportunity to do the will of God. My responsibility as a wife is the will of God. That's the will of God. It is the will of God for me to peel an onion to make the soup. It's the will of God for me to iron Lars's clothes. There's nothing mysterious about the will of God 99 times out of 100. It's just whatever the next thing is that God wants you to do. If you have to go to the bank, you go to the bank. If you go to the grocery store, you go to the grocery store. If you have a letter to write, you write the letter. If you need to call somebody up and make an apology or an appointment, you call them up and make the apology or the appointment. So events are God's servants. They present us moment by moment, hour by hour, and day by day with this question. Will you obey me? Will you trust me? Will you live for me? with me, in my presence, by my strength. So this brings us to the logical second point. He requires assent. A-S-S-E-N-T. An unconditional, explicit yes. The motto of my life should be, yes, Father. Anything you say. Do anything you want with me. It doesn't really make any difference to me whether I die or live. So long as I live for Christ. And that's exactly what Paul said. It matters very little to me. He said, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. But he said to me, life is Christ. And one of my life verses is Philippians 1, 20 and 21, that Christ might be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, life is Christ, and to die is gain. So he is asking me for a yes, for an unconditional and explicit yes. Dietrich 
von Hildebrand writes, for the sake of that ascent, he has endowed us with freedom of will, entailing the enormous risk that we, misusing our freedom, may sin. This is our entire earthly task condensed. I'll read that again. For the sake of that ascent, in other words, this is our entire earthly task, giving God assent, saying yes to God. For the sake of that, he has endowed us with freedom of will, entailing the enormous risk that we, misusing the freedom, may sin. This is our entire earthly task condensed. God is moving you and me. He is inciting us. He is drawing us. He is loving us. But we have to cooperate. He is asking, will you work with me? Will you be on my side? Will you say, thy will be done? Will you pull in the yoke with me instead of against me? Cooperation. Paul says we are cooperators with God. That is the exact meaning of the word that's used there, cooperators. Now, when Adleach said, will you marry me? I had the choice. And you might be interested to know that all three of my husbands had three different methods of proposal. And I will not embarrass Lars by asking if he remembers what he said to me. But I remember very well. When Jim, finally, after five and a half years, of loving each other, and I'm not saying that Jim was dragging his feet, as you know if you've read my book, Passion and Purity, which tells that story in detail. It was very plain to Jim that it, that God might be calling him to be single for the rest of his life, and so we waited, and we had no commitment. We were not engaged, no commitment to each other. We didn't even have what nowadays young people talk about as a relationship, and nobody ever seems to be able to define for me exactly what in the world that means. If I say to them, are you engaged? Oh, no. Oh, no, nothing like that. I mean, it's just a really neat relationship. You know, I mean, really neat. <laughs> and um, Jim and I had a relationship, I guess, but it wasn't very neat. And we didn't see much of each other. And anyway, five and a half years went by before God gave him a green light. And he didn't say, will you marry me? He said, do you want to marry me? And I was dead silent for probably 90 seconds at least. And he said, is something wrong? And I said, well, there isn't any question about whether I want to marry you, and I wanted to for a long time. My question to you would be, do you want me to? And of course he said yes. And anyway, that was the way that proposal went. And Lars, Ad said, will you marry me? Jim said, do you want to marry me? And Lars said, I want to marry you. But all three of them presented me with what? A choice. A proposal presents you with a choice. If you're selling a house, somebody comes along with a proposal. And you can choose to accept it or you can choose not to. God calls me in every moment of my life and I answer. I either say yes or I say no. And you can't shilly-shally in between. My parents brought us up with the clear understanding that delayed obedience was disobedience. It wasn't good enough for us to say, well, I was just going to, when they told us to do something. No, they told us once, and we knew that they meant exactly what they said. 
a young mother or a young father who tells the child come over here and counts to 10 is teaching the child what that he can delay his obedience and he's teaching the child that he really doesn't mean what he says now and the father or the mother who teaches the child who who tells the child three times come over here is teaching the child he doesn't have to pay attention the first time or the second time and the father or the mother who scream at the child finally after they've repeated it seven times and then they get furious and they're about ready to abuse the child because they themselves are so impatient have trained the child not to listen until they raise their voice three extremely common and i think extremely serious mistakes anyway delayed obedience in our household was punished because we knew that our parents meant exactly what they said the first time god calls me and i answer i have to say yes or no i cannot say wait it's simple you know it unifies my life it is the only truly integrating unifying power in my life the clear choice that i made 12 when i was 12 years old I want to do your will, Lord. When I get back from a trip like this, there will be a pile of mail with all sorts of different things. Usually invitations and requests of one kind or another, requests for interviews or articles and I'm just overwhelmed. And I don't know what to say to these people. Well, it it all comes down to one very simple thing. I look at this pile and I say, "Lord, you know everything that's in here." This I tell the Lord this before I open it because I don't really want to open it right away, but it helps me to know that God's already read the mail. And I just say, "Lord, I only have one thing to do. That's all I have to do is your will. So just show me." It's simple. It is a denominator in my life the least common denominator it is god's will not how do i feel about this not what does so and so want me to do not what will she think if i say yes to this or what will he think if i say no not what will the results be what kind of hot water am i going to get into if i talk about this subject on my radio program that's not the point that's not my concern It's so simple. What is right? What does God want me to do? It's the denominator of my life. His will, not mine. In Psalm 119, I'm not going to take you through the psalm verse by verse, but it is very worth looking at. The first just a few verses by way of illustration of what I'm talking about here. Will is a gift from God and never belittle the power of your will and don't tell me i have a weak will all of us have a weak will until we learn to say no to ourselves i do greatly admire dr james dobson but i have at least one little point of disagreement with him and that's where he talks about the strong-willed child no child is strong-willed they're stubborn they're rebellious but the only strength of will is the strength that says no to itself 
Jesus demonstrated the strength of godly will in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Not my will, but thine be done. And it is up to the parent to strengthen the child's will to will against himself. So we've all been given a will. It's weak to begin with. And here we read a psalm written by a man who was obviously not weak. Verse 6. I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart. Verse 8. I will obey your decrees. Verse 16. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Now notice, this is a man in trouble. In verse 22, he talks about being scorned and held in contempt. In verse 23, he's being slandered. In verse 25, I am laid low in the dust. And in verse 27, he says, what I will do. He's giving us a very clear picture of how he probably feels. I don't think he was literally being laid low in the dust. I think he was telling us how he felt. But that's not the point of the psalm. The point of the psalm is not how he feels. The point is, what is he going to do about it? And that is exactly what I'm trying to get across to you this morning. Verse 27, he says, I will meditate on your wonders. Verse 28, my soul is weary with sorrow. Strengthen me according to your words. Keep me from deceitful ways. Be gracious to me through your law. Number 30, I have chosen the way of truth. I have set my heart on your laws. I hold fast to your statutes. Do not let me be put to shame. I run in the path of your commands. Three acts of the will. Chosen, hold fast, run. Verse 44, I will always obey your law. Verse 45, I will walk about in freedom. I recommend that you study Psalm 119, putting down on one side all the awful things that he talks about that are happening in his life, and then putting down opposite that all the wills of what he's going to do. Is your life governed by principle or by emotions? The world is coming at us with tremendous insistence and power telling us we've got to get in touch with our feelings. And if it feels good, do it. And if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. I get asked to do interviews on the radio, on, on the telephone for various radio programs across the country, and I could not tell you how many times the first question they ask me is, how did you feel when your husband Jim was killed? Well, how do they think I felt? I mean, how in the world do they think I felt? But what? what's the point of spending even 30 seconds talking about how I felt? I get asked to do interviews about whatever my new book is. So this book, A Path Through Suffering, just last week, first question, how did you feel while you were writing the book. Well, I can't be feeling things and writing a book at the same time. Writing the book is the job that God has given me to do. It is always possible to do the will of God. It doesn't make any difference how I happen to feel. I never feel like writing. If I wrote books when I felt like writing, I would never have written the first book. So I don't really think that's a very important question. 
So try that sometime with Psalm 119. We'll just open your eyes. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.